Hello again, everyone, and welcome to The Crusher. I am very happy to welcome a very special guest today, Mr. Steve Fazio. Uh, interesting guy, uh, uh, man who's worn many hats. Uh, he's been a police officer, he's been a businessman, and he's done it in the city of Los Angeles for many years. And I thought Steve would be a great guy to bring on the show to talk about uh, the state of California and the state of California. So uh, why don't we talk today uh, about uh, policing California and doing business in California, and then we're going to branch off into some larger topics about California and uh, life in America here in general. Steve, thank you for joining me on the show today. My pleasure to see you again, Josh. Uh, happy to happy to chat with you as always. Thanks very much. So, Steve, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mentioned you have been a police officer for many years, and you also run a business here in the city of Los Angeles. Well, thanks, sure, Josh. Um, you know, basically, I was the guy that wanted to be a cop growing up whose dad wanted him to be his succession plan. Uh, my dad was very clever. He won the argument or won the <clears throat> won what was going on between us. And uh, I ended up going into business uh, with my dad, which was great. My dad and I were pals, rest his soul, and we got along great. And I learned a lot from him. He was my hero. And um, I did go into the business, uh, which was the retail cleaning and laundry dry cleaning business, um, and um, grew the business. And, you know, it's, it's, it's put food on the table and paid the mortgage and allowed my, you know, kids to go to college and all the other good stuff. But it's been very, very tough, like a ground war here in California. I sort of envy a little bit, not that I'm an envious guy, but I envy my buddies who are in areas in the United States where they can actually, you know, buy buy property and actually grow their businesses versus here in California. Those things are, you know, quite untenable um, between the regulatory environment and just overall doing business in California with taxes and regulation and all the things that we know about from, you know, the out of control uh, lack of tort reform, and I could go on with that forever. Well, um, yes. Well, let's let me stop you right there. Let's we'll get to your policing in a bit, but I'm going to correct you on one thing. One of the reasons you're on the show is because I don't think people are aware. I think okay. the people in California have a sense, but I don't think people nationally really do quite understand the kinds of things that have unfolded for you as a businessman. And so, go ahead and take the time to. Uh, reflect on on where we are now in terms of running a business in California, but also, you know, maybe, you know, how things have changed. Um, let's hear it. You know, I, I was all for, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this. You know, I was all for term limits. Uh, I thought it was a very good idea as opposed to having uh, folks uh, holding political office that, you know, um, were there forever. However, however, uh, what I have seen since then is that basically you have a relationship with your political held, you know, elected office holder, uh, whether it's your council member, your supervisor, your assembly member, your state senate office holder, your congressional member. And once you develop those relationships, which are hard to formulate, you basically want to have a connection to that office. And what's happened is, whereas at one time some of those office holders actually were part of the world uh, that wasn't the political, you know, office they held. Subsequent to that, basically all we have now are people that were one-time staffers that are now holding political office who have actually never been in the business community or held any job. 
outside of political office. And so they have a very narrow view as to what makes an economy work. Um, and they kind of are inculcated into a, a groupthink, you know, and they really don't understand the plight of somebody in business. Uh, and they have more of a socialistic view for the most part in California as to how it is that they need to govern. Um, and so whereas, again, at one time I was all in for, uh, for uh, you know, um, uh, um, people that uh, should only hold office for a little bit of time, now it's perpetually they're running for office. And for every person that actually owns a business, there's got to be, you know, I don't know how many, there's a, a statistic out there somewhere, I'm sure. But for any CEO or president, there's probably, you know, again, name a number. I don't know what it is, but 100 people that don't own the business. And so the people that hold office basically cater to the electorate, you know, that basically votes for them. And they don't really have much in the way of sympathy for people that are trying to actually create jobs and uh, grow a business in California. And it's evidenced by the fact that every time they they need money, they come to the business community to do fundraisers and they look to us to give them money. Um, however, when I ask them, which is my little litmus test, and it's just a joke inside of my own head, uh, you know, what what have you done that is not against business? Give me just one thing, not three things. I'm easy. Just give me one thing, whether you're a whether you're a uh, congressional member or a uh, or, or a supervisor uh, or in any level of political office, just give me one thing that you've done that's pro-business, just one, and never can anyone come up with any. Um, they just hit businesses with increased costs every which way. Um, we have, you know, retroactive liability. We have all kinds of things that are just, you know, cost small companies tens of thousands of dollars. We have to hire people. We have to hire lawyers, you know, just to do a lease agreement. Now you need to spend at least, you know, five to $10,000 having your lawyer look it over. I mean, they're, you know, just to buy a car. Does anyone actually ever read <laughs> what they're signing when they buy a car or lease a car? I mean, it's, it's become impossible because of the regulatory environment. So um, tell me, let's, let's zero in. Give me some specifics about California sure. that are becoming untenable. Well, to hire an employee, so I, I run a chain of, of small dry cleaning, you know, locations, right? So when you add up the minimum wage and the workers' comp uh, and the insurance that you have to have in place and all the things contained within the regulatory environment, just to hire an entry-level person, you know, I think the last time I calculated, it was about $50,000 just to hire somebody. Um, you know, and you can't really hire in a small business people that are going to just be entry level. It doesn't mean they're going to stay at that entry level their whole career. It means you bring them in, you train them, you get them, you know, going, you get them mentored by somebody that's been around, but you can't even do that anymore. And, uh, and you're competing against large businesses that can easily hire those folks, you know, for that much or more. Um, and it just becomes very hard. And the lament of people, one of the things I'm a member of is a business association called Young Presidents Organization. And, and the lament among the members within uh, YPO uh, is that we can't hire anymore. I mean, people, you know, people don't want to go to work for smaller businesses. They go to work for corporate America, basically, or they get out of the area entirely. It's just become very, very difficult to hire people, to retain people. Um, and, and that's just on the, on the labor side of it. Um, in addition to which, if something happens where things don't work out legitimately, sometimes it's just not a good fit. Um, oftentimes you end up getting sued. 
um, and that drives your insurance premiums up and everything else in between. Uh, so it's just become a very, very difficult environment from a labor standpoint to do business. Um, there are people out there that'll sue you for just about anything and lawyers will take the case and your insurance, you know, I've, I've gotten rid of people for cause. My favorite story is a couple of years ago when someone was embezzling from me. Um, when I, when I nicely confronted them on the fact that they, you know, from what I could see this, this, and that were happening, they quit the next day and sued me for unlawful termination. And then they went and they ended up with a, a medical claim that they had been stressed out. And before you know it, it was $75,000, you know, in legal fees and in, uh, medical fees to get rid of this person. And they ended up, you know, they ended up basically winning, if you will, you know, after they embezzled from me, you know, there, there's kind of nothing you can do. So that's just on the labor side, on the regulatory side, I could go through a host of things as well. Again, the, well, give, the, give me, give me a couple of thorns from California that okay. are sticking in your craw. Well, there, there's something called CERCLA, you know, where you basically are, um, are responsible from cradle to grave with joint and several liability for any contamination. Well, none of us are for contamination. We're all people that care about the environment. People that run companies for the most part, unless they're horrible people, care about everything they do. So if I buy something tomorrow that had been contaminated by the prior owner and the prior owner no longer is around, they've moved or passed on or you, they're unfindable, I'm responsible you know, as a potential responsible party now, I'm now responsible for the contamination that someone else created prior to my ever even owning the business. You know, so it's just so in order to escape that conundrum, you have to hire an environmental consulting firm and do all kinds of, you know, all kinds of um, uh, remedial action or or investigatory action for five to ten thousand um, dollars. And banks don't really want to lend uh, to people in smaller businesses because they don't have, you know, the confidence and their ability to uh, not have these problems as you go through time. So access to capital is hard. Getting sued is, you know, uh, never ending. I got sued some years back um, where I hired a licensed, by California, a licensed hazardous waste disposal company of which there were only two. So I hired one of the two to haul away my hazardous waste. That company went bankrupt and polluted the site, unbeknownst to me. How would I know? I mean, their site's nowhere where I could have access to it. Um, and I ended up having to uh, fund, uh, I think it was $350,000 to the state of California for the fact that the company I hired that the state licensed polluted their site. But since I was the potential responsible party and I'm responsible from cradle to grave, I got sued. Uh, uh, and had to end up ultimately paying for the contamination that I didn't even cause. I did everything right. Do I did it think, exactly the way you Steve, want to see it. Do you uh, do you think that other states? No, I know for not, sure are not offering this kind of situation. Well, no, tell me, other states no. don't have this kind of threshold or, or low. No, no, no. Other states. No, I'm a member and have been a member of several different industry groups, you know, that um, consist of chain operators throughout the country. And they laugh at California. 
I mean, they just think it's ridiculous. Why would anyone do business here? You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's comical to them, the things that I end up reporting, because we get together on a monthly, well, now it's quarterly basis. We've reduced after COVID. We get together quarterly and we have something called what's new, you know, so like what's occurred since the last time we met. Um, and we all write it up and then we share it for the first few hours of a meeting. There's about 10 different companies in there, all of whom are chain operators, and we kind of share what's going on. And when it comes to, you know, California, there's a couple of us that do business here in California in that group. You know, the the, the laughter ends up bursting out. Even my daughter who went to um, GW and in her sorority, you know, we got together with some of the friends when she graduated and there was a few attorneys uh, in D.C. that had sent their daughters and they were in the same sorority as my daughter. And so we were chit-chatting and they were lawyers, they were government lawyers. And they're like, oh, you're in California. That must be a lot of fun to do business there. You know, they said we get around, we, we, we come together about once a month. The partners do a laugh about what California is doing to their business community. You know, it's just uh, it's just horrifying. Yeah. You know, we don't now. We won't have time to talk about this today, but I, I'll, I at some point I will. Uh, I know from having. I know from having, we'll say, attended a lot of. This is water. City. <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't have to be. You're doing this <laughs> podcast. You should drink. No, but but listen. Um, Sequa is another yeah. thing that this state deals yeah. with, which is that yeah. uh, these they will tie yeah. you up on environmental concerns when yeah. there are no environmental concerns. I've yeah. seen people who have bought a property. They were going to build a resort on the ocean and yeah. they're they've been tied up for so many years they spent yeah. all millions and millions and millions of dollars they were going to put hundreds of people to work uh but it, they can't because of sequel but also one of the reasons you can't build any housing in california is because sequel is so ridiculous that, yeah. that you can't meet those well, environmental it, yeah. thresholds because well, anything, have- go ahead I'm sorry. You have in, in Orange County, or in Orange County, in Ventura area, uh, you have the Save Our Open Spaces, you know, stuff. If you try to get, you know, on, I call it a corridor, you know, from the San Fernando Valley uh, out to, let's say, you know, Thousand Oaks or Oxnard or something like that, there's there's all the employees that are doing, you know, uh, that, that are employed out into the Agora and, and further west areas the freeways are completely congested by the fact that you can't, there's not enough housing out there, you know, and they can't build housing. I mean, it's, it's a good original kind of thought process where save our open spaces. Who doesn't love to look, you know, look out and see mountainous areas and everything else. I mean, obviously if you had your druthers and you had a home, you'd like to see the mountains versus another tract of homes. I get that. Um, but again, you know, our California builders are doing building in Texas, they're doing building in Nevada, they're doing building in Arizona. You know, uh, it's just too expensive to do business here. And then we end up with a homeless situation, you know, and a housing stock. My my wife and I have four kids um, and three of them live in Los Angeles. And, you know, you tell me how somebody between 25 and 35 can afford a home in an area that's anywhere remotely close to where they're where they're working you know, uh, without spending, I mean, my daughter, my daughter's been pre-approved for, you know, a loan for, you know, a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money for, Mm. for the last few years looking for something to live in, in Los Angeles. And there's, there's just, you know, there's nothing available. No, no. And everything, everything, Steve, even uh, every shadow, I'm in the Valley right now. I know you're not far from the Valley, San Fernando Valley. I'm in the Valley. Yeah. Everything, every, every little 1200 square foot home, in any condition, and I mean rough condition, is yeah. three quarters of a million dollars. 
It's insane. And yeah. and I'll just say that anything that says it's good for the environment in California immediately passes. Before we move on to policing, which we will, real quickly, what has been the impact, Steve, of you are now living in a one-party state, mm-hmm. okay? You're living in a one-party state. The Republicans have no muscle here, let's be honest. No. And so what has been the impact of no push and pull, no checks and balances? Because yeah. it's it's not good the way yeah. this state is governed. Yeah, I mean, we have no What's statewide office. We have no statewide office holders, as you know. We have a super minority in the state Senate and the state assembly. Um, and uh, the party basically is always being pulled further, not towards the center, but but more towards the left. Um, and anybody that's a mod dem, and I'm friendly with, you know, lots of mod dems, you know, they basically are, their lament is they keep getting pulled further and further towards the left, even if that's not where their uh, governing philosophy is. So I don't know where the end is to that, but you see who it is that's being elected. I'm not opposed to uh, a moderate Democrat. I support, you know, mostly moderate Democrats in California because there's, you know, no Republicans basically to support. Um, so I support lots and give money to lots of moderate Democrats. Um, and you want to hope there's a tipping point somewhere down the road. Um, and maybe we're there and maybe we're not. I'm not really certain. We'll see as these different elections occur. But, you know, I'm all in for a mod dem, you know, but there's not many for, you know, not many from which to choose. But has it made your situation worse over the years as it goes further and further toward a one-party state? Yeah, again, it's it's the one party, but it's also the direction of the party. You know, the trend of the party, the trend of the party is more and more uh, pro uh, pro suspect on the police side uh, and pro labor. Um, which again, I, you know, you can't live without labor. So I don't want to like make it sound like I'm against labor. I'm in no way, shape or form against labor on the same behalf though. Um, you have to be able to run a business and grow a business. Um, and, um, sometimes labor doesn't make sense. You can't continue to just, you know, uh, increase wages because it, it crowds out the middle class is the problem. Your, Your hamburger suddenly, you know, at $25, you know, a hamburger, you know, to clean a suit is going to be $50. You go out with your family and it's, you know, 75 to to $100 to a nice restaurant per person. I mean, you can't just keep catering to labor because because it crushes the middle class. That's who gets hurt. The, the wealthy people are going to go out and do whatever they want and buy whatever they want. Yeah. It's the middle class that's going to get crowded out, elbowed out by this continued uh, wage inflation. Uh, you see it now everywhere. So, Steve, let's let's move on now to policing. You've been a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're a reserve officer, uh, or, or yep. have you been? It doesn't matter to me whether you're full time or reserve. You're a police officer. You're on the street. Uh, you've been yeah. on the street for many, many years. Uh, yeah. So, why don't you tell me about how how has the public's attitude toward policing changed in your time? And how has your ability to enforce the law changed over time? Well, you know, we see the effects of how it's changed, and it hasn't been for the positive. And, uh, 
you know, the apathy is slowly setting in to not all, but many of the members within the law enforcement community, you know, whereas at one time they pretty aggressively wanted to make sure that the neighborhoods within which we all live, you know, are as safe as possible. Now they put themselves at risk when they get involved with something. And so that ultimately ends up where the response times kind of diminish a little bit. Um, if you and I are partners in a black and white and something's happening, um, you know, we kind of look at each other like, what's the level of involvement? Now, most people still want to do their job. I mean, they're really, they're really actually an extraordinary breed of human beings that want to do that job. But unfortunately, we're seeing the results in the recruitment and retention arenas, you know, where like, for example, LAPD is down below 9,000 officers, whereas at one time, just a few years ago, they were at 10,000. Where that hit gets taken, it gets taken on, at the field service level. And then the chief and the administration has to then um, uh, jockey around the people that are doing the work that needs to be done on the detective side, on the admin side, because they got to push people out into the field. And that means that there's nobody then that's doing the packaging for prosecution. And then even when you get to that step, you know, the prosecution side is obviously an issue in uh, this city, this county, and this state, uh, because we basically feel as though on some level, philosophically, there's too many people in prison and in jail. You know, so if you're the cop on the street, do you really want to spend the next four hours arresting someone only for them to end up ultimately being released? Let me interrupt you. Mm -hmm. We have in Los Angeles, we have George Gascon as our, as our district attorney. Mm -hmm. They tried to recall him. It failed. Twice. Yeah. Um, you know, the state, the, the population of this state has doubled in my lifetime, probably more than doubled in my lifetime. The number of, we have an open border and we have for years, the number of illegals coming into this country, it's, it's, it's a discussion for another time, but it's, it's astronomical. Uh, mm -hmm. In New York, they're shocked they have 100,000. We've, we've had millions for years. So let me ask you, how do you not build jails? Now, your population doubled. You have more, I mean, it just, the number of people who've come in here, and then you have, you have illegals coming in by the millions, but they don't want more jails because it doesn't make them feel good. This is my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. Reflect on my opinion. Yeah, it's it's extraordinarily frustrating. There, you know, I mean, I handled a burglary car on the detective side before I went to my current assignment, which is downtown, not in a not in a geographic area any longer. Um, and you know, people would get broke; their homes would get broken into, and we would go and do the follow up investigation. And um, you know, on the detective side, you know, you had the patrol side that would go out and do the report, and then the detective side goes out and they do further investigation to see if there's any cameras in the area, and you interact with the homeowner who had their home broken into and they're, they're miffed. And you ask them, you know, like they don't, they don't ever draw a linkage between who they're voting for and what's going on with public policy. And so I would always ask them without, without, you know, um, suggesting who they should vote for or, or in any way interject politics into the discussion. It was just merely interesting to me when I would ask, do you know who your, um, to, who your uh, congressional member is? No. Do you know who your uh, state senator is? No. Do you know who your assembly member is? No. Do you know who your council person is? No. I mean, they. do you vote? Yeah. Well, then how is it that you don't end up ultimately knowing a little bit more about who it is that you're electing? And yet, 
you're frustrated over the fact that your home was broken into, as was your neighbors, and you, you're part of Community Watch, and you see what's going on, and you get on the freeway, there's somebody shooting up on the side of the freeway, you know, but you're you're not knowledgeable as to who it is that you're voting for. Um, so that, I, I, I'm still kind of just scratching my head in disbelief as to the apathy of the voters in so far as knowledge in terms of who they're voting for. And I'm not, again, it's not really a partisan issue because there's every different stripe you know, there's horrible Republicans and there's great Republicans and there's horrible Democrats and great Democrats. Just at least know what it is that the voting record is for the person that you're voting for. Uh, and the, and people don't even know the name. They don't even know that they're, they should be voting for half these people. And I think until people wake up and really come to understand who they're voting for, it will, it'll matter less, really, frankly, as to what the political party is if they just get awakened to the fact that this person stands for this. And we'll go ahead and vote in well, that manner. I uh, let me suggest this, Steve. Uh, I have a very strong opinion about the the Democratic Party being hollowed out and taken over by the hard left. Mm -hmm. And I see this nationally, but I I really see it here. Okay, and um, I think there's people I could name council people who I know hate. I want to use the word hate. Mm -hmm. The police. Yep. They walk in. I know there's a councilwoman not far from here goes into the precinct with with defund the police t-shirt on. Yeah. She's LA Council, Steve. Yeah. And I'm very concerned. I'm yeah. very concerned about people not understanding that these are wolves in sheep's clothing and that the hard left is running the show. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, and I, my sense is that any moderate Democrat, it seems to me in my, this is anecdotal, but in my, in my dealings in life, I'm finding that JFK Democrats or mainstream Democrats in LA, you're a, you're a right-wing kook. Oh, That's yeah, just how sure. you're viewed. Or, or, uh, or bring it, bring it even further. If you're like a Bill Clinton Democrat, they yeah, now say right he was the, yeah, you're, a, you're a right winger, you know. I think now we actually have a coalition government. I don't really think of us, what we have as a two-party government any longer. If you really look in, and slice and dice what's going on in the parties, you really have coalitions. You have this social Democrats, which are socialists, basically, uh, but they have to line up in the Democrat Party because there's a machine there, you know, and you have to be a part of the machine in order to get elected. You know, you need the phone banks and the people that are going to walk the walk the precincts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you really have in the way in which we have in other governments, you really have coalitions within each of the two parties. And it's a matter of who's up and who's down within the coalitions. Maybe there's a little bit of a tipping point right now. Hopefully, I'm being uh, optimistic here. Maybe there's a little bit of a tipping point with regard to the coalition government idea, if, if you buy into that kind of coming up to the right a little bit where people are getting dissatisfied with what they're seeing by the left, you know, side of the Democrat progressive party. You have, you have, um, uh, Democrat, uh, former and current members of every different level of elected office that are more frustrated than you and I are with the left wing of their party. I mean, that are actually out lobbying for somebody that's more moderate in their party. So, I mean, it truly is like a coalition. We look at it as monolithically as though the Democratic Party is something by way of a governing philosophy. They're not. You know, there's different coalitions within that party and there's different coalitions in the Republican Party. There's a Tuesday morning group. There's the, you know, the, there's every different stripe 
within the Republican Party as well. Some are way too far right for me. Um, I'm not I'm not really that far right. I mean, I I would have been a Democrat, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, but, but in, Steve, in most of my Steve, life. Steve, yeah. Steve, now yeah. we're going to talk about you running for office a few years back. Uh, you ran sure. for a, you ran for a state Senate seat, right? I did. OK, so let's say let's say you're a center Republican. OK, right. You're a centrist Republican. Let's call you that. Steve, how does they're so hysterical in California that you might be a Republican, you might not be a Democrat. Give me your experience running for the state Senate seat that I believe is now held by Henry Stern, uh, the actor Daniel Stern's son. If I'm this, this is what when I met you, you told this story uh, at Uh a uh, at a little luncheon we were at. So tell Uh me a little bit about your experience running as God forbid. A moderate, God forbid, a moderate yeah. Republican who's been yeah. known to, God forbid, support moderate Democrats. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it was first. Like first of all, I actually enjoyed the experience. I made some. I made some amazing friends and had some great relationships. Um, I just as large as my problem with the left. I had my own problems with the right. You know, there's some lunatics. You know that I had to contend with as a Republican. That you know had all kinds of ideas as to what we should do. You know, the anti-vaxxers would corner me and the, and the, you know, pro this would, and the anti that, you know, so they were as much a handful as anybody on the left. Uh, Henry and I became friends throughout that with, we had a bunch of debates and, uh, you know, I never disrespected him and he never disrespected me. And I went to his wedding and, you know, we have a relationship as I do with other Democrats in my region because you have to. Um, and, and, you know, I basically have more in common than I don't with a lot of them. But on the same behalf, um, you know, it is kind of interesting running as a Republican in a coastal area. You know, I ended up with about 173 or 4,000 votes. Henry had like 220,000. It was the Trump cycle. So a lot of Republicans decided that there was no candidate uh, on the on the ticket for them. And there was two Democrats running for um, U.S. Senate, Kamala Harris and um, another candidate that lost uh, to Kamala Harris. Um, so there wasn't really a good reason for a lot of Republicans in their minds to come out and vote. They didn't like Trump. And I wasn't a, I wasn't a never Trumper, but I didn't like Trump either. Um, all my folks at the evening would come and they put a big, you know, life size Trump busts in the front of the three campaign offices that I had. It wasn't my thing. It wasn't my cup of tea. Um, and, and so I had to contend with some of that. So it, it was an interesting. Again, it was a great learning experience. Um, when I would go to Sacramento, they basically would tell me that we really like you. You're a business guy. You're a dad. You know, you own a home. Uh, you've worn a uniform. Um, you know, uh, you're the kind of person we'd like to see up here. So we're going to do you a favor. We're going to stay out of the race. Um, because if we give you a dollar, we have to give the Democrat candidate three dollars um, because they're the ones who make the trains run up here. And if we give you, let's say, a thousand dollars, we have to give them three thousand um, dollars or else we're going to never be able to get a bill, you know, um, passed uh, in the state legislature, period, end of story. So I had a lot of people that I basically neutralized, but that wasn't helpful because you need money to run, you know, because I would get, you know, Henry would have independent expenditure campaigns making things up. I was the biggest polluter in California. I mean, my wife and I have a good sense of humor, so we'd laugh. But, you know, it was it was that absurd, though. We'd literally laugh. I mean, I didn't take it seriously because it's just so dumb and outlandish, you know, but there's, I'm sure somebody read it, and, you know, I would get cornered every now and then and say, it says right here this, this, and that. I'm like, 
you know, really? I mean, come on. And and I went to all the, I never didn't go to like a, um, a, a debate because I thought it was interesting. So I would go in the, you know, the most Democrat possible enclave within the district and go do the debate where at the end of the debate, they would come and they would, you know, the, the audience would commiserate with the four or five Democrat candidates and my wife and I are, you know, talking to one another. You know, how, how long is the politically correct time to stand here and talk to each other, honey? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? Let's go for sushi. You know, and all everybody would be going and talking to the Democrats. Um, they didn't even want to hear what I had to say. Um, and, and that was fine. That's not all the all the time. But there are areas like that where I likened it to Crips and Bloods, really. Actually, it's a white, white collar Crips and Bloods. You know, if you're in one party versus the other, you're red or you're blue. You know, it was really kind of tragic. And, and I think about it, you know, at one of my YPO conferences not too long ago, somebody got up and asked, on the global stage, is there anyone that is a states person, man or woman, uh, on the global stage? I mean, can anyone identify anyone that we could all say, you know, like a Mother Teresa type or a Gandhi type or, you know, is there anyone on the in the public arena that we could all say, yeah, that's somebody that, you know, really is somebody that has a depth of knowledge and wisdom to them that we could get behind? And nobody could think of anybody. And it was a cross-sectional audience. It was, you know, it was it was non-denominational. you know denominational. Nobody. So- so, Steve, let's uh, let's wrap up with two quick things that require like another hour of discussion. But I'm going to hit two <laughs> things. One's California and one's about the state of our world. The first thing, and this is the last thing about California. I'm going to make an observation and you can tell me I'm full of crap. I don't care. Uh, I, I live in a state that uh, that operates on a fantasy uh, led by Gavin Newsom. And he has said, he has said what I'm about to say, he has basically said. The homeless crisis is working class women and their children out on the streets. And I'll take you, Steve, not that you need me to take you. (laughs) You're a cop. I'll take you to any encampment. Mm -hmm. Michael Schellenberger, liberal up in San Francisco, wrote the book San Francisco. He's, He's been all over the news about it. He laid the data out. He's a liberal guy. He laid the data out. It's mental, mental illness yeah. and drug addiction. Correct. So we spend, this city alone spends billions. This is with a B. This is with a yeah. B. Billions. Does the problem get better? No, it gets worse. Yeah. There is a homeless industrial complex. There are people making a lot of money. I don't know if they're hiring social workers. I don't know what the hell they're hiring, buying office supplies. I don't know what the hell they're doing. They're not getting anybody off the streets. And we have a governor who cannot utter the words mental illness and drug addiction. That's exactly what this is. We give them welfare. We don't. We refuse to have a sobriety standard. If we give housing, there can't be a sobriety standard, in my understanding. We are absolutely here. I'm going to use some bad language. We are absolutely batshit fucking crazy in California, Steve. We are fucking totally crazy. This problem gets worse, we, we throw another billion. Gets worse, throw another billion. And we lie to ourselves because it doesn't make us feel good to build mental hospitals. It doesn't make us feel good if people need to be incarcerated. It doesn't make us feel good to try to return them to their families. It doesn't make us feel good to ask them to be sober. It doesn't. Ma- it makes us feel good to make speeches about mental illness, but to do absolutely nothing about it. And we do not have the balls to pick people up off the streets. 
other cities, just other cities, as just as Democrat as our state, are not putting up with this. We are putting up with this. We are insane. That's my speech. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very difficult. Listen, if you were elected mayor tomorrow, <clears throat> you know, and your bit and your primary initiative was to get people off the streets, which I think actually is the primary initiative of Mayor Bass currently. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't, it, it's not snap your fingers stuff. You know, we definitely need to figure out how to um, get people off the streets and get them help, you know, and the problem comes in where, you know, if they don't want to get off the street, the courts have upheld their right to stay on the street. You know, the public interest seems to come last in that discussion with regard to not having them on the street. So somehow we have to get them into some sort of rehabilitation or off the street, and the courts have been in the way on that. So Stop, stop. Uh, Which courts have decided this? This is the state Supreme Court? Uh, no, there's a there's a district, uh, there's a federal district court, federal I think, that district. weighed in on this. Yeah. Okay. So we, we have to figure out how to figure that out. And, and I'm not an attorney, um, but I do know that there is all kinds of laws that we break the minute that we do A versus B. You know, it's easy for the other cities to just kick them out into L.A., and now it becomes L.A.'s problem if you're in Culver City or, you know, name some of the peripheral cities, Beverly Hills, you know, go across the street into L.A., you know, so they all end up in L.A., and then we're the ones that have to get stuck with the paramedics. The You know, I would say about 80% of the calls for service on both fire and paramedic, over 80% of the calls on paramedic, and, you know, when you talk about the billions, you look at the budget for the fire department when much of what they're doing is dealing with homeless-related incidents, and you deal with law enforcement, and much of what they're dealing also relates to incidents with uh, homeless on the street. So, we don't even know what the ultimate cost is. I don't know if anybody's actually got a calculation that comes close, but whatever it is, it's more than what you think it is because we're just wasting and wearing people out to deal with this. Um, and and I, I don't know what the answer is. So let me ask you this. You go from <clears throat> Via Ragosa to Garcetti to uh, Karen Bass, on and on and on. Steve, it's, if it's not a snap your fingers thing, th we have to face that the people who are running this show they do not have the courage to make any changes because I'll give you an example. There's a homeless guy on my street about a year and a half ago. I told him, leave. I said, get out of here. Because I know as soon as he's there after a day or two, there's going to be 10 more. I said, you mm -hmm. got to leave. The guy smashed my the windshield of my car in retaliation. I said, you know what? That's the price of an education. I'll pay for that. He's gone. He's never come back. We've never had another homeless person. We... It may not be a snap your fingers thing, Steve, but someone on the city council, some people in our apparatus here have got to be able to say, no, you can't sleep in your car anymore. We're not yeah. doing RVs anymore. We're not doing mm -hmm. tents anymore. There's There's yeah. got to be mechanisms for this. It, you know what I'm saying? Uh, of course. Yeah, it's frustrating at levels within law enforcement. It's frustrating within levels of <coughs> uh, of the fire service. Uh, and it's frustrating within the more sane halls, you know, of, of of city council, the more sane ones. And there are some sane people there. And it's frustrating for the mayor's office. You know, they'd like to make it go away as well. Um, I don't know what the throttles and the and the levers are that are possibly being able to be pulled, but I know that there are some. And I and I know that Mayor Bass is currently this is her focus. Um, I don't know, so I don't want to be 
I don't want to be um, unfair to somebody that's been in office for uh, six, seven, eight months. I don't know what she currently is doing because things do take time. Unfortunately, even the best idea takes time within a you know bureaucratic environment uh, to get some inertia. Uh, but hopefully there's some mechanisms that are being put in place that will accommodate. I know that there's housing issues uh, that they're trying to rectify. I know I saw last week where they're um, paying people that own hotels to take them on a one-year contractual basis instead of a monthly basis. So I do know that there are some things that are in play. You know, it'll be good to know more of the inside as to what is going on there. But nobody wants the current reality to be the permanent reality. I don't think at any level of government, I don't think anybody's satisfied. So now it's a matter of, okay, so what are what are the levers that we can pull? And I don't know what those level, levers are. But I do agree with you, it's mental health and, and, and drugs. But how do we intercede with that? When someone doesn't want to go into a facility, and I've seen this, I've answered radio calls where there is a sophisticated family that has a loved one that's on the streets, and they will do anything. They will do anything to intervene and get them off the streets, but that person doesn't want to get off the streets, period. They don't want to get off the streets. I don't know what to do with that. So we put them on a we put them on a hold. We bring them if they've done something where they're unable to care for themselves or others. We bring them to a facility, and then within a day or two they're out. And I don't know what to do about that. I honestly don't. If the person yeah. does not want to help themselves. All right, Steve. <laughs> let's finish with this. And this is uh, <clears throat> this is a long discussion, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make it real quick, and, and I'm just gonna let you talk. I know you <laughs> and you and I both have a, a particular interest in what's going on with uh, the world, uh, the the can of worms of anti-Semitism that mm. is uh, in our face. Yeah. Um, I'll just say this. At MIT, the they had to testify in front of Congress. I watched that hearing. Yeah, they, yes. all, they all stood on free speech. Um, Steve, it wouldn't be free speech uh, if, uh, if uh, blacks or Hispanics were being chased into a room. Or and, LGBTQ. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't be free speech if it was any other minority. So I hope that there are civil rights cases coming. But here's here's the thing. At MIT, for example, the, the president or whatever this person calls him or herself said, oh, there's, there's places where Jews, it's not safe to go. Don't go there. If you said that to any black people, LGBT, Latino, any minority, you would have a major civil rights case on your hand. And I hope that there's a civil rights case coming. Give me your reflection on the outburst of rabid anti-Semitism. It's not just anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism that we see uh, on our streets now. Yeah, it's beyond disturbing. You know, <clears throat> it is just beyond disturbing. Those of us that grew up in homes that had loved ones that endured that, you know, listen to them say it could happen again, and we would poo-poo it and say, no, that could never happen again. That was a, a time in life where that's no longer you know, going to be anything that we'll ever see again. And yet here we are, you know, uh, observing what's going on and it is uh, horrifying. Uh, I can't think of, you know, a word other than horrifying. And for those in charge of our institutions, um, not to treat it with the equal level of attention, as you suggest, as they would with the horrifying I'll use the word again, you know, elements of society that would do the same things against people of color, 
or people that have, you know, uh, a difference in their belief system or gender system or, or ethnicity. I mean, how it is that 16 million Jews, you know, are somehow the oppressors is unconscionable. How, how can that be? You've got 2 billion Muslims, you know, I mean, how is it that this group of 16 million are suddenly the oppressors is, you know, it, it's unfathomable to me. I don't understand it. I can't get my mind around it intellectually. Uh, it's emotionally disturbing and horrifying. And and I, I think that we are, though, when you see these hearings in Congress um, and you see these people bring, being brought, you know, to the table to have a uh, an interaction as it relates to what's going on, I, I think there's... I think we're. I, I want to believe that we're at the, the the worst bottom part of this, and that at this point things are going to improve because there's been highlighted enough where it's impossible for anyone to hide their head, you know, like an ostrich without leaving a large target, you know, uh, for themselves. And and you see people withdrawing from uh, these universities with regard to their uh, financing them now. I mean, I think it's getting serious finally. It's taken way too long, but nevertheless, it's been, what, five, six weeks since October 7th. So, you know, in the grand scheme, five, six, seven weeks is not that long. It just seems like it should have been immediate, but it's not, sadly enough. Again, had it been one of the other uh, uh, communities that we've rattled off, it would have been pretty immediate. Instead, because it's the Jewish population, it's taking two months for people to come around and see things for what it is. Hopefully, we've hit the bottom of this and that yep. we're going to see some, you know, some change in the positive direction, because this yep. is just, it, it's very pathetic that these quote, so-called leaders of these institutions um, can't just be more forthright in their, um, in, in their, um, um, you know, castigating these people. I mean, this just, I don't know how this could be, and yet here we are talking about it. It's crazy. Uh, agreed 100%. Amen to that. Uh, Steve Fazio, police officer, businessman, great citizen, and uh, thank you so much for joining me on The Crusher today. Uh, I really appreciate being so generous with your time and sharing Anytime. your insights. Thank you so much. Steve. Take care. Okay, keep the faith. All Bye. right, very good. <laughs>